Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Hello everyone, it is wonderful to have you back with us for another governance update here on VLGA Connect with our thanks to Hunt and Hunt Lawyers, the wonderful sponsors of this program. They keep coming back week after week, as do many of you, and I just, it boggles my mind as to why. Steve Cooper, hello. Hello, Chris Eddy. Do you know why? Why are these people still here? Um, I don't know. I I am quite worried for them, but um, I thank them anyway. All right, we, uh, we've got a lot to talk about as usual, never a dull moment in local government, but I think the, uh, the headline is uh, another successful Ida Hobbit Day has uh, come and gone. And let's just have a look at these numbers, Steve. 68, I understand, of 79 councils acknowledged Ida Hobbit Day this year by flying the rainbow flag. Let's not just focus on the 11 that haven't for a moment and focus on the 68, because I believe there's at least a couple of additional ones this year. I thought it was terrific, Chris, a great celebration, certainly on my social media feed, of the um, events that councils were conducting for the day and uh, the various ways that they marked Ida Hobbit Day, which um, was really powerful. And when you look through the LinkedIn feeds, the Twitter feeds, etc., um, a couple of themes emerging, obviously some really strong support from councils and councillors, but I did notice a few used the opportunity to uh, jointly acknowledge the occasion with other community groups or organisations. Did you notice that? Certainly, Chris, and it really, I think, signifies a shift that's been occurring in the way councils operate that... Um, you know, local governments no longer do things um, for community groups. It's um, it's partnering and uh, taking steps with community groups. Now, we there's some highly publicised ones, one in particular that has come late to, to the party this year, but uh, arrived at the right decision ultimately. I know of one or two metro councils that hadn't acknowledged it until this year, so kudos to those. I don't suppose uh, anyone's got the list of the 11 that haven't, not that we're wanting to name and shame, but it would be good to keep an eye on that number over the next couple of years. No, and the thing I would hope, Chris, and we've touched on this before, is that um, as councils move to, you know, not only celebrate Ida Hobbit Day, but other kind of social issues, that it's done in an orderly, well-planned way that is... Um, heavy on policy and light on politics because that ensures, you know, really sustainable change where people don't get hurt. All right. So that's Ida Hopper Day uh, come and gone for another year. What has arrived this week? Uh, we're not sure if this is probably by the time you see this, this will be on the local government Victoria website. And it's the insights report from the Culture Project, Steve. Chris, we haven't held back. We've been, you know, quite strident at times in our criticism of Minister Sean Lean and his timing of announcements. But credit where it's due that the minister actually uh, orchestrated release of this report to the peak bodies uh, where Friday morning, it was Thursday, that uh, that was circulated. 
Thank you, Minister. That's greatly appreciated. We'd hate to have gone through the whole weekend reading this report and not mentioning it on the governance update. That would have just been an embarrassment too far, wouldn't it, Steve? Oh, I may well have lost sleep, Chris. So, um, yeah, as I said, kudos to the Minister. But maybe we should talk about what's in the report. Uh, look, I think we should, and I'm really looking forward to getting uh, some some feedback from from people and hearing what they, they think about this. It's pretty far-reaching. I, I want to get to some of the opportunities in a moment that have been uh, uh, listed there for further exploration, Steve. But headline, 149 responses, which I thought could have been higher, particularly mm. from councils. Only 11% of the respondents were councils. 27% were current council laws. And uh, a few CEOs have submitted to this individually as well, 5%. Members of the public, 21%. So just a couple of standout stats for me there. Yeah, I think so, Chris. I was a bit surprised by uh, how few, considering, and we've said often here that, you know, culture is the biggest game in town. One of the things I um, would have liked to see a bit more of, and and maybe it'll emerge during the next phase of the of the program, is really an emphasis on some of the good work that's done. The... Um, the report does make some pretty disturbing uh, commentary, uh, quite rightly, on uh, what you might euphemistically call misbehaviour. And the other interesting thing is the relevance, I guess, of the discussion paper to what people thought were the issues. 96% of the submissions confirmed the themes. 4% actually contradicted uh, one or more of the themes in the paper, but 14% raised new themes that weren't referenced in the discussion paper, which I think is a healthy stat too. Oh, absolutely. And you'd like to think that um, any sort of discussion paper is reasonably on the money, but promotes that sort of discussion. So that's good. And I know the VLJ, we've talked uh, in our submission quite extensively about the fact that there is a political kind of overlay. And I know there are themes that are not surprising that have emerged around, you know, councils being board of directors like, um, and sort of tucked away on page 11, there is an acknowledgement that the, you know, the politics and the representation of communities does impact on the way that councils operate. Yeah, so let's look at a little bit of the detail. Now, we're probably going to unpack this, I think, in more detail on a VLGA Connect, because I know Catherine's really keen to, to keep the focus on, on the culture review through that, that program. But leadership experience and capability the councillor journey and early intervention and effective dispute resolution are the three sort of themes of what the sector's saying. Uh, but the devil really here is in the detail when they unpack those submissions, the suggestions that have been made. And uh, I went straight for opportunities for further exploration, Steve. Anything particular jump out at you before I give you mine? Uh, I think I know where you're going to go, so I'll go somewhere else first. I was pleasantly surprised uh, that some emphasis was given to the uh, opportunities for support or additional support to mayors, um, because you know that role of mayor uh, is important, and that's really worth thinking of. We see that all the time, don't we? Mayors that are, you know, some are very well equipped, some are new to the role. Uh, it's that leadership role and providing the guidance and advice to other councillors on appropriate behaviours and navigating some of those tricky situations where the the submissions here and the paper seems to agree more support is needed. I agree Absolutely. 
Now, where are you going to go, though, Chris? Surprise well, me. Well, uh, you won't be surprised. I I hone straight in on maybe it's my background, the, the things that impact on the CEO and the council mm. relationship in particular. And there's quite a bit in here. The ones I've highlighted, though, are exploring legislative additions to protect the CEO or provide CEOs with the ability to discipline councillors displaying poor behaviour and misconduct. I think that's a really interesting one, uh, a really challenging one too, when you think about the uh, quoted, uh, inverted commas, employment relationship. Well, particularly when uh, one of the case studies um, that was actually quoted in the report talked to how difficult it is for CEOs or for a particular case where a CEO was required to initiate a, an investigative process against one of the councillors you know, who effectively employs the CEO. So that dynamic is a really uh, one that's full of tension. And, and therefore, it also flags the exploration of having the CEO recruitment and performance assessment, as well as governance and culture reviews, potentially, being conducted by a third party, an external independent party. That was, that, that was a big call. That is really worth some consideration um, uh, by councils as to what would that mean and uh, what would the change of dynamic be, councillors, if, if in fact um, you were presented with a CEO and needed to work with that person where you don't, you know, it really changes the power dynamic. Sure would. It would really delineate areas of responsibility as well much more than it is now, wouldn't it? The grey areas potentially would become less grey. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Steve, what do you think about the idea of exploring term limits for councillors? I was, actually, that was the most surprising um, thing I read in the report, I think, Chris. And it got me to wondering what, um, what are the dynamics at play there? I have heard people talk about, you know, an eight year maximum um, in the past, but you know, is there, it would be worthwhile exploring, is there something to say that councillors um, having extended terms beyond that um, are part of the issue? And I don't think it's necessarily um, pointing to the individual councillor, but is that case where there is not sufficient change in the councillor group part of the problem? Well, we put them on generally independent members on audit committees, for example, for, I would suggest, similar reasons. Mm. Um, so why not look at it from, and, and CEOs are on contract terms, and, you know, with some exceptions, they generally don't hang around beyond the two, three term mark. Um, yeah, so why not explore that for councillors too? Oh, <laughs> Well, that's true. And I mean, if you went back to the CEO employment arrangement, Chris, one of the issues with that independent appointment is that surely an independent who was responsible, for, say, for example, recruitment of a CEO or assessing the performance of the CEO would look to um, understanding completely the relationship between the CEO and the council and whether there is a public interest in continuity or change. Yeah. We've probably got a few councillors yelling at their iPad screen or their um, podcast app at the moment. I expect that one will be quite uh, contentious and there'll be quite a lot of discussion about it, which is what the process is, is all about. Uh, formal mentoring for councillors, increased clarity on councillors' leadership responsibilities goes a bit hand in hand with that support for the mayor and their leadership role, Steve, and mandatory training for mayors. Yeah, for sure, Chris. I think it's worth noting too, though, we're talking about culture. There is no one silver bullet. Yeah. Um, it's about the whole thing and how those individual ingredients um, make an impact. 
Couple more that I've highlighted, increase councillor allowances to increase the candidature pool and improve council demographics. That's a bit of the you pay peanuts, you get monkeys sort of argument, isn't it? Oh, look, Chris, we um, at the VLGA made a submission to that effect, um, I think, and it's a pity that there is so much currency given to um, keeping the allowance at a low level as if there is some public benefit in uh, in scrimping what, on what you pay your you know, strategic leaders. Apropos of a conversation we had last week about a discussion going on in South Australia, include more family-friendly meeting times and flexible working arrangements. Well, it was terrific to see a whole section in the report devoted to the topic of um, diversity and inclusion and the impact on culture, Chris. And um, um, sort of back to Ida Hobbit Day, we know it's about, you know, the, the issue of intersectionality is important where if you create a more inclusive environment, whether it's, you know, for any particular group, you... Um, increase the pool more generally. Social media gets its own section. What a surprise. No, not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can imagine it uh, It took up a, a, a reasonable part of some of or many of the submissions, given its prevalence. Oh, look, it must have, Chris. And we've, we've aired social media here before. Um, I thought in that sense, look, one of the issues is there's no great surprises in some of the appalling behaviour that we see on social media. There is certainly an amount that councils can do by having um, strong, well-founded uh, social media policies, but a lot of it goes to culture and good judgment and a culture of respect that we might come back to later. Perhaps two more things, uh, unless you've got others you want to raise. Um, I, I thought this was interesting. Um, extend or establish training for the general public on the functions and expectations of the LG sector and roles and responsibilities of the various actors. I just wondered how that would work and who would participate. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly how it would work, Chris, but I know the VLGA um, submission certainly touched on that. And I, and I know we weren't the only ones. Look, one of the issues is where you get this mismatch between what the community expect of their local councillor and the roles and responsibilities as laid out in the act that the councillor in making their oath of office signs up for. You know, if there's a disconnect, that is always going to be difficult. So you know, basically doing whatever we can um, more broadly in civics, I think is a good thing. And the other sort of more general um, catch-all is around uh, managing conduct or misconduct, looking at the timeframes, uh, trying to, I guess, streamline is the way, my word, um, how that process works, but also looking at expanding the role of municipal monitors in a number of ways, uh, using them as mentors, uh, yeah. using them in ad hoc situations, uh, even a suggestion of uh, roving municipal monitors uh, using a mystery shopper type uh, process wouldn't be a bad thing. And there's been and there's been quite a lot of talk, Chris, about how you know historically, well, in the last fifteen years, the appointment of a monitor has been seen as an automatic precursor to um, a council suspension or dismissal. Um, but what we've seen more recently is the appointment of a monitor as a circuit breaker or you know an intervention to to assist and so would be really good to actually formalize that absolutely all right so the insights report we've, we've really just skimmed the surface there's a lot in it i think it's a really readable and interesting report but you know we're local government tragics uh but we know there's a few more out there um so it's not on as of recording the lgv website but we understand it it will be imminently to use our favorite word and we'll put the link in the show notes chris 
We will indeed. There's a culture project section on uh, the local government Victoria website, and I'm sure we'll be coming back and talking a lot more about next steps. So, what's your undertaking, your understanding, Steve, of where this takes us next? The um, report, Chris, talks about the fact that the next steps need to be uh, implemented in conjunction with the sector so that they can be sustainable. So in a sense, we're talking about whatever the next steps are needs to have buy-in from the sector because, you know, it can't be a top-down approach from head office. And the minister, I know, is keen for the sector to own the solutions here and be part of whatever flows from it. Uh, A couple of other states are going through similar processes, not exactly the same, but I imagine they'll be watching pretty closely to see what comes out of the Victorian process and hopefully we're leading the way in terms of some meaningful change. I think so. I think the fact that we're talking about culture is important. It it can be a a difficult conversation, but as you've said before, when we were quoting, I think, a Tasmanian mayor, we we really need to look into into the mirror, not just the window. Absolutely. All right. Uh, some other stories making news. Let's, there's, there's quite a bit. So let's see if we can sort of touch on these and do each of them a little bit of justice. Darabin Council's in the news again, this time because they've launched a process to identify opportunities to transfer council land to Indigenous people. Uh, Herald Sun report uh, early in the week, uh, quoting uh, some of the councillors there as saying they want to set a national trend in this space. Chris, and I think it's um, it's really important to look at this in the context of treaty, of what's occurring uh, across the state at the moment with the Europe uh, Truth Commission, um, and the fact that this will this process of treaty will um, automatically and of necessity require you know meaningful dialogue between councils and the traditional owners and particularly the elders. Um, so I think props to Darabin Council for getting on the front foot with this. I think this is not a topic that can be just ignored in the hope that you know someone else will do it, that the councils who engage in this process meaningfully will have a richer conversation uh, with the traditional owners and have better outcomes for communities, um, both First Nations communities and wider communities more generally and us as a nation. Yeah, nicely said. And uh, we'll come to a a related topic in just a second. While we're on Darabin, I just want to note that uh, Darabin had a special meeting on uh, the 18th. What was that? Wednesday evening to uh, to confirm the appointment of an interim CEO. And uh, it's an internal appointment. I'm really pleased to see Rachel Olivia uh, confirmed in that role uh, for the time being. Well done, Rachel. And Rachel's the general manager responsible for all things planning, amongst other things. So um, has navigated some difficult issues with the council already and great to see that uh, she enjoys their confidence. So on to Moreland. We're not travelling very far here. Uh, the renaming process that we've been keeping an eye on has taken a big step forward last weekend. In fact, they had a special event and a council meeting to formally receive uh, a short list of three names that have been put through a process by the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung Cultural Heritage Aboriginal Corporation. I love all of these names, uh, Steve. Uh, I'm not making comment on you know whether the naming is... I, I think it's a good process. It appears to be uh, fully uh, thought out and will uh, engage the community, but I know there's some contention about it, but I do love the names that have been uh, shortlisted. Wadambuk, meaning yep. renew... Marybeck meaning rocky country and Durang meaning leaf of tree, Chris. So, and I think the important thing is that these are names that have the support and endorsement of the of the elders of the traditional owners. So, um, I think the the bit of contention that's really um, 
I suppose interesting here is there's a bit of discussion going on post the council meeting as to whether the council should have first had a discussion or a referenda, if you like, as to whether the renaming should take place. Right. And the majority of councillors have made the call uh, to move straight to asking the traditional owners for the names. Um, I'm a bit old-fashioned, Chris. I reckon that councils get to make decisions at times and get to stand on their record uh, at the time of election. Um, and it's probably worth saying that um, a debate about whether the renaming should occur uh, may well have been pretty divisive and hurtful. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm a bit old-fashioned in the same way, that uh, that's what you elect your local representatives to do to make those decisions, and notwithstanding deliberative democracy, participative consultation processes are going to be required at certain times. Uh, and that's what we've got here on the name. Have you got a preference out of those three if you were in Moreland and voting? Um, I, Chris, we haven't talked about cricket but I quite like Mary Beck because all the best turf wickets are Mary Creek soil. Um, but no, I don't actually, I, I, I don't have a strong name. I think it's just terrific that the names have come from the elders, whatever the Moreland community vote for. Great. Yeah. I like Gerang. It's got a ring to it that I like. Rhymes with Kerrang and Terang, Chris. Oh, it does too. Yes. Okay. Uh, apropos of nothing? No, nothing at all. <laughs> There's an online survey being launched and uh, hard copy surveys for that Moreland community. Uh, the council's going to consider the feedback in July, under, understand and determine a preferred name. And then uh, that's got to go through the process, submit to the minister, etc., and go through the geographic naming process. Yeah. So there's a bit, bit of water to comb under the bridge yet. And now there's more going on at Moreland, though, Chris. There is, Steve. Uh, not great news, this one. Um, the depot workers there have voted to go on strike. They're taking a three-day strike from, I think it's next Wednesday. Uh, this is uh, reportedly after their request for a $50 per week pay rise was uh, rejected. Uh, it's the second strike by depot workers in a month. Uh, last month, uh, there was uh, a period of time, I think for a day, where rubbish uh, collected and this time it's for, or wasn't collected rather, it, uh, uh, what's the word, when it accumulates, there we go. Uh, and, you know, three days obviously is going to have a stronger effect again. Uh, look, Chris, and I see there's um, a quite detailed news report um, about that. I thought one of the things that was interesting that the issue was raised that if the council's spending half a million dollars on the renaming, surely they can pay their staff a bit more. And, you, you know, you always get at any level of government that argue, argument about, where the money is spent. I also thought, Chris, that um, in some ways it's really interesting the timing of when this EB happened to come up at a point where uh, wages keeping pace with inflation uh, is a live issue. And we know that there's whatever is decided at Moreland will have a knock-on effect for every, um, for every, every other local government. So, Steve, as most people see or hear this, the election's probably over, although it might be a while before we have a result. But the campaign promises have certainly kept uh, flooding in in, uh, in recent days. Um, I was interested in an analysis the ABC did on pool projects in particular. We see a lot of pool projects get lots of money thrown at them by both of the major parties. Um, in fact, the vast majority of those from recent campaigns are yet to be delivered, and there's concerns about the level of debt that uh, councils will be forced to take on to deliver those projects. 
Chris, I wonder if next week, um, without the shackles of a uh, federal election coming up, we might talk about a few of these issues in more detail. But we have spoken previously about the fact that often when federal money in particular goes to a council capital works project, it still leaves the council with the bulk of the funding responsibility. And notwithstanding, most of the time, these are projects that are on council's books in their in their capital works uh, plans and their asset management plans, etc. So that they want to deliver them. So there's a real betwixt and between here. Well, sometimes, Chris, but sometimes they are projects that are not on the capital works plan and the council is put in that difficult situation of how to then reshuffle and give a priority because they've got money coming from elsewhere. And so I think you're about to segue into um, the advocacy that's being particularly led by the Australian Local Government Association. Yes, I was, because uh, Linda Scott, the president, has put out a statement this week summarising what's been achieved in the advocacy campaign. Uh, She says billions of dollars have been secured as a result of that advocacy, including Five hundred million from the coalition, seven hundred and fifty from Labor to extend the local roads and community infrastructure program. The the other interesting one is the financial assistance grants. She said commitments have been made from both parties to continue to increase those untied grants. And there's two hundred million dollars a year promised by Labor to to invest in disaster mitigation and resilience. So there's some of the things that have been strong themes of the broader sector advocacy. The FAGS is an interesting one. Look, it is indeed, Chris. And I know um, actually by the time uh, most listeners um, get this program that the agenda for the Mildura City Council meeting next week uh, will be available. And uh, Councillor Jason Modica has lodged a notice of motion, particularly around that question of the financial assistance grants, which, and it actually surprised me, but since the mid-1990s to now, have declined from 1% of federal taxation revenue to 0.55% of tax revenue. And so Jason's calling for um, broader advocacy, not only from Mildura, but from councils right across the country um, to support a, you know, a return to that 1%. I think the, we need to keep the foot to the pedal on this one. And with uh, the ALGA National General Assembly coming up in June, I'm sure it'll be a hot topic. But you know, I often quote that figure, Steve, that local government collects 3% of tax revenue in this country and delivers, what, upwards of 20% of services that communities rely on. The, the mix is not fair. No, and we've got eight. We've got eighty percent of roads, Chris. I think the other thing, this notion of efficiency in local government, really needs to be unpacked because certainly in Victoria, and the reasons for uh, rate capping have been around, I guess, the rate shocks that some residents receive. But we're now seeing that the impact of rate capping isn't sort of greater efficiencies. What we're seeing is council councils just getting out of services, but still having to provide an administration that's becoming problematic. And Jason did a rather excellent bit of analysis just on some of the financials and made the point quite reasonably that federal government fossil fuel subsidies are over $10 billion. Um, Federal government um, financial assistance grants to local government are $2.1 billion. Wow. Um, Where are our priorities? That's that's extraordinary. I (laughs) I thought so too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good bit of research there. Okay. We should uh, dig a bit deeper into that. Perhaps we can even talk to Jason about it at some point. Um, 
So uh, let's just keep an eye on that one. A couple of things, Steve, that caught my eye from a, from a couple of Victorian councils this week that I, I gave you a little bit of homework to do. I want to talk about Indigo Shire. Great little council. I've done a bit of work with them over the, uh, the past few years. I did tune into their meeting during the week because the motion from the mayor to potentially open up their briefing sessions to the public was due to be considered again, having been deferred from the last meeting. It's been deferred again, but the process by which they got there, I thought, was really interesting from a governance point of view. It raised a whole load of questions about the application of governance rules for me. Did it look? It's worth a watch, Chris. Um, and I think it's at about the one-hour mark of the meeting earlier this week, which must have been about the seventeenth. Um, and what happened was that the mayor sought to vacate the chair so that he could move his. Um, notice of motion and let's not maybe uh, the conversation around open council briefings is one for another day yes um, but the council was unable to um, get a nomination from the floor to act as chair um, and part that of that problem Steve forgive me for jumping in was that the deputy mayor was zooming into the meeting and under the governance rules couldn't assume the chair that's it. And we like following the governance rules, Chris. That's usually a good idea. But they should be read like the laws of cricket in the spirit of the game uh, rather than black letter. Um, but then what happened was that the mayor basically resumed the chair. And when council, a couple of councillors sought to uh, resurrect the issue, the mayor said that the motion had lapsed. And eventually we moved on. Uh, the things that were interesting for me there from a governance, nerdy governance rule point of view, Chris, was that the mayor quite rightly sought to vacate the chair um, because their, motion, their governance rules about motions say that they can't be moved from the chair. Um, but the motion didn't lapse because a lapse motion... It never motion, got moved. It, never, it was never on the table. Yeah, and the governance laws are quite yeah. specific. Yeah. <laughs> um, it lapses when you can't get a seconder. The other thing is that their governance rules say that where a councillor who's lodged the notice of motion is absent or otherwise able to put the motion, it can be moved from the floor. So it would have been possible to give another councillor the opportunity to move the motion. Um, and I'm not being critical of the mayor because none of the councillors said those magic words, point of order, Mr Mayor. Yes. Look, uh, it, governance can can be a bit of a dark art in the heat of the moment of council meetings, but I made those same observations. The motion wasn't on the table, therefore it couldn't possibly have lapsed. And you're right, no one actually called uh, points of order on those things. Um, and then there was debate about how do we get this deferred to another meeting? Yeah. And I think that was my point about um, the rules of cricket, Chris, because ultimately it's not in the public interest to have overly pedantic um, interpretations of the governance rules, but they are there to assist and facilitate the running of the meeting and should be used that way. All right, that meeting's there on the YouTube channel if you, if you want to have a look. But the upshot of it is we've got to wait another month now to see whether they determine to open those briefing sessions to the public, which is really why I was tuning in because I'm really interested to see where they land <laughs> like, on that. Likewise, we'll come back to that, Chris, I think. We will. <laughs> 
another interesting one that involved lapsing this week, uh, Steve, was Greater Shepparton. Uh, again, I tuned in because I wanted to see how they dealt with this policy that had been prepared to deal with councillors and mayors who are standing for state or federal election. Of course, as many of you would know, Greater Shepparton has a councillor on leave at the moment standing for state election. Uh, Rob Priestley, there's a whole another story about that campaign that we could go into, but probably don't have time. No, um, and, and the mayor has indicated, Kim O'Keefe, that she will be standing down to run for, or at least taking leave of absence, I assume, to run for state parliament uh, Sorry, I, was, I think I said Rob was running for state. He's running for federal, uh, Kim running for state later this year. So a policy's been developed to provide extra guidance. It was listed on the agenda for Wednesday night's meeting, came to the appointed time in the agenda, and it lapsed because no one was prepared to move it. Deathly silence. Yeah. Well-functioning council, Greater Shepparton. Um, you know, coherent council, really good administration. I guess my only comment on that would be, Chris, as a general rule, it's a good idea for councils to be able to close discussion on a particular issue so people know where they're at. If you couldn't get a motion to um, approve the policy or vary the policy, then maybe it would be good if someone moved a motion to take no further action for the time being on the policy. Yes. And then we all know. Absolutely. It just leaves a vacuum, doesn't it? So um, I know the press was there and they spoke to the mayor after the meeting. Uh, she's quoted as saying that councillors considered it was overkill because there are already rules governing candidacy. And she's reiterated that she will be stepping down at the appropriate time, doing what is fair for the council and the community at the appropriate time is what, is what she said. Yeah. And as I said, Chris, I think this goes to culture. It's, on, on its own, it's small beer. Um but if you had a council that had a habit of not doing that, you'd kind of wonder what was going on. Yeah. All right, we'll leave that one there. Uh, two other things I wanted to just note from interstate, Steve. The Western Australian Minister for Local Government, John Kerry, is quite active on LinkedIn. I do enjoy his posts. And he made one this week about concerns over meetings that councils are holding at very late notice, and that's about the transparency issue and the community understanding what's being dealt with there. But also, um, I gather he sees an increased prevalence of items being dealt with in confidence, and he's looking to deal with both of those issues in the review of the sector that he's currently running. I picked up on that one too, Chris, and thought it's a terrific reminder, because how easy is it? You know, you'll recall the Ombudsman did a report I think 2015, about and, and found that some councils were dealing with matters confidentially because they were embarrassing, not because they would be confidential. It would also be easy to allow briefings to slide into being decision-making forums. So sort of constant reminders around how we do business and maintaining transparency, I think is terrific and good on the Minister in Western Australia yep. for posting that. Big tick there. And perhaps the last one uh, that caught my eye is out of Cumberland City Council in uh, New South Wales, where they've seen the need to develop a campaign uh, about um, uh, curbing these instances of attacks, whether it be physical or uh, verbal assaults on their staff. So you're talking parking officers, rangers, etc. I assume customer service uh, people, 65 incidents in the in the span of just over two years with a, a whole lot more they think that haven't been reported and they're basically saying enough's enough. Oh, look, and it spans a number of levels, Chris. It's, it's not right that people go to work and receive that sort of treatment. It's damaging to individuals. It's damaging to us as a society and it would be costing the council some money in terms of avoidable 
work cover issues. Um, I think there's just an issue around people being angry. And I don't know if this is a, a long bow to draw, but I was really taken a few weeks ago on Anzac Day at an NRL game where someone shouted out before the end of um, the minute silence and the, the gentleman behind thought it was a good idea to start punching him. Oh, now, really? <laughs> you know, what have we come to as a society where we're so intolerant? You know, people, people aren't always perfect. You mightn't always agree, but there's a real conversation around culture, around what's the kind of level engagement of engagement that we accept and and yes. how should we how should we encourage better behaviour? Do you think that's exacerbated by the pandemic? Have we lost our social skills because of um, some of those uh, conditions that have been imposed upon us? There has been a bit of my right to get angry, Chris, hasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Steve, I know I said that was the last item, but perhaps uh, just one last one, because you brought this to my attention, something happening in Bath and northeast Somerset, I think it is, Council in England. Oh, Chris, you know I don't like it when you raise issues without notice. But, yeah, that one was one where uh, the council realised that a booking had been received from an organisation, I mean, I think effectively an anti-vax organisation, yeah. whose um, goals and objectives were contrary to the sort of national health and, you know, World Health Organisation guidelines. And the council said, no, you can't have your booking. Yes, yes. And I, I thought good on them. If councils have got policies around public health and an organisation wants to do something different, um, I think public health trumps free speech. So I do too. It's controversial I, for you. I think the the issue here was they probably made the booking and no one realised what it was and it was getting close to conference time when the council realised or someone raised it on social media, I think, and they jumped in and said, oh, we can't have that. So sorry, you're not coming. Good on, Good on them. Absolutely. We'll leave that there. Thank you, uh, Steve. Uh, have another great week. And uh, are you going to be watching the election coverage on Saturday? I night? will be glued on Saturday night, Chris. As will Waiting I. Waiting for Anthony Green to make his call. Absolutely. Yep, that's where we'll be, the ABC, for sure. All right. Thanks, Steve. And thanks to Hunt and Hunt Lawyers, our sponsors, for another edition of the Governance Update from VLGA Connect. Bye for now.